Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 35. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Sum 41 frontman, Derek Wibley. You may recall back in 2003 when MTV did a show called MTV Icon Metallica. There were some other events in that Icon series, uh, one of which I remember they did for The Cure, uh, which I believe only aired overseas. And I remember that one because I was managing the band Bleeding Through at the time. And AFI played the MTV Icon The Cure show and recruited Marta from Bleeding Through to play keyboards with them on the song Just Like Heaven. But this was the year prior to that, and at the time I still worked as a full-time reporter and producer at MTV News, and a strange time in the history of Metallica. Um, We hadn't seen some kind of monster yet, as it wouldn't debut at the Sundance Film Festival until the following January. It was Metallica's first TV performance with Robert Trujillo. Interestingly enough, their last performance with Jason Newstead was also for television for something on VH1. The show featured appearances and testimonials from Rob Zombie, Jim Brewer, of course, Lisa Marie Presley, which is super weird, and what appeared to be a very inebriated Sean Penn, and then a bunch of bands of the era, MTV bands of the era, covering Metallica songs, which included Korn, Limp Bizkit, Snoop Dogg, doing Sad But True, Avril Lavigne, Stained, and Some 41. Without throwing anybody under the bus, Sum 41, far and away, no question, were the stars of the night, other than Metallica themselves, of course. The show was actually bookended by Metallica medleys. Uh, Metallica closed the show with a medley of Hit the Lights, Inner Sandman, Blackened, Creeping Death, Battery, and what was then their new single, Frantic, the first song from St. Anger. And Sum 41 opened the show. They were actually playing when Metallica came out to greet the crowd at the very beginning of the program. Doing a medley of For Whom the Bell Tolls, Inner Sandman, and Master of Puppets with just a little bit of battery at the end. And it was badass. I believe MTV Icon The Cure in 2004 was the last MTV Icon event that featured AFI, as I mentioned, plus Blink-182, The Deftones, some band called Razorlight, and then The Cure doing a medley of I believe three of their songs prior to the Metallica event. um, I believe the first was Janet Jackson followed by Aerosmith. I had the opportunity to sit down with Derek a couple of years ago at the musicians Institute during the MI conversation series that I host there where we talked a great deal about Derek's career, some 41 and the comeback of sorts that they were then mounting. So it was great to catch up with Derek again in a Metallica-specific conversation. And we did also speak a little bit about the band's forthcoming record, which is due out later this year. So here it is, my conversation with Derek Wibley of Sum 41. This is Speak and Destroy. So when I started this podcast, uh, you were you and Brown Sound uh, were both right on my wish list of guests, given your uh, long and unapologetic and uh, vocal support and love for Metallica. And I was actually yeah, cool. I used to work as a reporter and producer at MTV News, and I was actually at uh, Metallica Icon. Uh, both for during the rehearsal and then um, Ian Robinson and I were sitting together, oddly enough, by chance next to Ricky Rackman um, <laughs> in the crowd during okay. the show. Um, cool. But, but yeah, I figured uh, MTV Icon was a good jumping off point. We can kind of work backwards from there. Uh, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Tell me how that came about and, uh, you know, how the invitation came your way. And, you know, was there any prior contact between Metallica and Sum 41 and, and you know, kind of set the scene for how Sum 41 at MTV Icon came about. 
Yeah, I mean, the the whole icon thing came about. I remember we were on tour and we we'd never met Metallica or anything. I mean, we were huge fans, obviously, um, but we'd never run into them or met them in any kind of way. And uh, we just got a call from management one day, just saying, you know, we've been asked. Um, and uh, you know, it was just instantly like, wow, what an honor! Like we were surprised and excited you know, to do the whole thing. We didn't really know what we were supposed to do. We just got asked if we could be a part of it. And we started thinking about, you know, some things that we might be able to do and would want to do. And I know it was early enough that there was only, like not all the songs were taken yet. So we kind of had a pick of stuff to do. And we were like, well, we want to do this and we want to do that. We want to do this. And we said, well, let's ask if we can do a medley. You know, we'll just do a couple of the things that we want to do. Um, you know, so it kind of grew from there. So let's, um, you know, we talked obviously when we did the Musicians Institute thing, which by the way, seems like a couple months ago. And I'm realizing as I'm talking that it was like two years ago, probably. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we talked, you know, about getting into music and some of your first loves and all of that. Where did Metallica specifically kind of enter into that picture for you? Well, I would say Metallica for me, I would have been around, I'm going to say 10 or 11. That was the, the age that I was kind of starting to get into music on my own. And it was all kind of rock music. Right before that, it was a little bit of like old school rap music. That's kind of got me into my own music out of your parents' music. Yeah. Which, you know, my mom's music was great too. But, it, you know, it was like the Stones, Rod Stewart, Cheap Trick, and the Beatles, and stuff like that. So it wasn't bad. But, you know, then you have things like Run DMC, and Beastie Boys, L, Cool J, at the time, they kind of got me into music. And then right in, right away around that time is sort of like Guns N' Roses, Metallica, um, you know, and this is about like, and you're getting into it from, you have like, old, you have cousins who have friends or like older, it's just like that, that generation is a little bit older, so you start hearing about things yeah. that you know, we're a little bit before your time, but like, you know, you start hearing about this band Metallica, you start hearing this thing, Master Puppets. Um, and then Black Album came out right around that time. So, you know, they were just massive. And that was my first, I was 11 when that came out. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, that was like my first of like new Metallica. That was like my era. Um, but then you go back, you know, because you've been hearing about all this other stuff. And you have access to it because through cousins or your friends, older brothers and stuff like that. Yeah. One thing that comes up often on this podcast uh, and just in conversation in general is, you know, this was an era of what a friend of mine calls secret knowledge where, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't just uh, a couple of taps in, into the interwebs to become an yeah, instant yeah. expert on something. If you got hints of things, it was exactly like you said, through this uh, real life social network, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and 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 yeah, it sounds like you were a lot like me, and I think a lot like all of us, where you discovered something, you fall in love with it, and you immediately want to kind of reverse engineer it and go backwards and, you know, find out what came before. And then sometimes that even that leads to unpacking it even deeper. And, you know, I discovered, you know, I have a Misfits tattoo, and I discovered the Misfits because Metallica wore Misfits and Sam Hain t shirts. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, and it's like that. Um, sort of, you know, going back and back. And it's interesting what you mentioned about your music versus your mom's music. And then sort of, you know, with the caveat that your mom's music was actually pretty cool. I had a similar realization as well, where, you know, the first music that I fell in love with that was really mine was, um, you know, a lot of the, the new wave and uh, early kind of MTV stuff in the 80s when I was very little. And then, you know, that led into punk and and thrash metal and things like that. But my mom, mm -hmm. my mom's music, which was for a long time, just her music to me, uh, you know, later in life, I kind of come back around to it. And I'm like, my mom was into Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson mm -hmm. and, and all this stuff that, that is now thought of as cool again. You know, it, it, wasn't, <laughs> yeah, totally. it wasn't cool when I was a kid, like, you know, and I'm getting into the Sex Pistols, like my mom listened to Lane mm -hmm. Country, you know, and, then, yeah, and yeah. now it's like, oh man, I had like Crystal Gale and like, you know, Conway Twitty and like Alabama and like pretty rad stuff on around the house, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, it, it you don't really see it, It's not till later. I think when you really see it through that lens, when you're 
kind of becoming, I guess, more well-rounded in your taste. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that stuff helps, though. Like, I think you probably started out, even though you probably didn't like it or you didn't know you liked it, it was still good music. So you're you're kind of being trained to yes. like good music right from an early age. So when you go out and find your own music, that's actually good. Yeah, that's a that's, that's a good a point. Theory. I don't know. If no, I, I mean, I I think even some of it through osmosis in a sense, you know, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I I have two kids and uh, my, my son is six and he recently has been telling people his favorite bands are Metallica and Morrissey and you know it's easy mm-hmm. for adults to roll their eyes and be like, well, of course, you know, uh, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have been I, I've tried to haven't really indoctrinated my kids with music I love. I've just been I've just played it. You know, and it's like whatever's yeah. kind of on and, uh, you know, someday they'll be having the same conversation we're having where it's like, yeah, the first stuff I heard was this and this from my parents. And then, you know, mm-hmm. then I found this and, you know, maybe, you know, my daughter is going into middle school in the fall. So, you know, before I know it, she might be into SoundCloud rappers with face tattoos and, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to go like, well, this is as weird to me as like, you know, Master of Puppets was to my parents. So. Yeah. Um, I guess it's okay. I think that was like with the music that if you see, you know, like I know there's this history repeats itself where, you know, parents always say their kid's music is weird and doesn't make sense, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I think if you go back and you look at the the music that sort of came before and that the music that came after, even though it was like totally different, it was always revolved around pretty talented people in mm. a way, you know, yes. where like if you could look at, so before you know, Elvis Presley and stuff like that. And like, you know, Sinatra and Dean Martin, all those guys were kings, right? And then you got Elvis and and then, you know, just everything that came after, all the, the Beatles and Stones and everything. They're all really talented, totally different. So people who listen to like jazz, they'll be like, I don't know about this rock and roll thing because it's not that good. And then so on, you keep going down. But now we get to this sort of like mumble rap thing. Like yeah. there's zero talent. Zero. So I don't know if you can really compare it. Like I think <laughs> it, and maybe – it's just me, but like when I see a lot of the stuff that is kind of replacing music now, I'm like, yeah, it's replacing it, but it's really there's no talent there. It's all sort of like computer generated. It's it's not coming from any kind of like emotional place. I don't know if it's gonna if it's the same as it always was with music replacing music. Yeah, I, I mean, know. I, you know, as someone who's who's also a fan of hip hop, um, you know, it's it's strange to think that championing the lyricism and the versatility of Rakim and KRS-One or you mm-hmm. know, even Eminem and, and things like that, that now that's, uh, that's old man shit <laughs> to even say, you know, like um, that's kind of mind boggling. I think you make a great point um, in that, you know, as much as somebody might have decried some of the window dressing that came along with some of the culture or, you know, some of the themes or the misogyny or, or whatever the issues might have been, no one could ever deny the almost unfathomable talent that it took to do a lot of that wordplay and things like that. And now that's, that is definitely gone. And I, to me, it, it gets into like the idea of art versus commerce where to me, art is about intention. And, and like you said, uh, the emotion. And I think I've, I've always argued that as long as someone has, a point of view and something to say, and that doesn't have to be like political or whatever, but just like mm-hmm. has something that they need to get across and that they're authentic and passionate about, then it's art, you know, whereas when it's somebody else who sees someone else's art and goes like, well, that's cool. I could, I could be popular doing that. That could make mm-hmm. me cool. Uh, you know, that, that can even become a decent facsimile, but it's never going to have the same, potency is something that had that authenticity in the beginning um so yeah i to your point um i mean man even you know somebody i love hip-hop beef um mm-hmm. you know even when when the game and meek mill were, were feuding like a year ago like i'm like i somehow tune into that even more than like when pe- rappers i like are dropping new singles i'm just fascinated by that whole element of um you know all the just the different stuff that happens in those contests of course when it's kept on wax, so to speak, this, you know, yeah. when I'm in favor of it, but, uh, but yeah, when there was the Eminem machine gun Kelly beef semi recently, and, and that was, yeah, that was rough. Cause it's like, 
Eminem is almost indescribably talented. And you knew like the minute that he was going to answer back that it was going to be devastating. And mm -hmm. yet I feel like somebody like MGK was able to coast. Uh, like he, he, he held his own kind of really just with charisma <laughs> and, or goodwill. Yeah. You know? Like he has fans. Cause it's like you, uh, you're joking if you want to try to go lyric for lyric, you know, and, and that's oh, yeah, MGK is, yeah, totally somebody on the i guess the upper tier of the mumble rap thing <laughs> there's like some of yeah. it that's literally just uh I, I like to say they sound like they're just listing every word they've ever heard <laughs> yeah that's probably a good description of it i mean i don't really pay attention to it too much because it really doesn't speak to me so like you know i've right. heard it a little bit and i just can't get into it and i don't bother i don't know anything about it it's just it's you know that's sort of the the world that we kind of live in of like we're where it used to be you were force fed music right because you had mtv and you had all this yeah. stuff where it's like that's kind of where you got stuff and you had no choice about what was coming on and you only had so now many you places you could go yeah now you can go anywhere. yeah so now yeah. you anywhere so i just don't have to listen to any of that stuff <laughs> um yeah so i don't ever hear it i don't really know much about it i know it exists <laughs> and i know i hate it uh and that's about as far as it goes for me <laughs> i mean i did hear yeah. that eminem record when it came out um and I didn't know there was, he was like, you know, calling people out on it. And I didn't really know the people that he was calling out on it, but I know the style of music that he was calling out. And I loved what he did. I loved yeah. hearing his record. It was like, oh my God, there's a passionate vocal again. There's right. like clever rhymes and stuff. I was like, this is awesome. I thought, because I was starting to worry that like, you just kind of don't know. Like, I'm, I'm hearing all the stuff that's out right now. I'm like, is that good because i don't think it is but it seems like a lot of people think it is I'm like am i losing that thing of like knowing what is good <laughs> i don't know and then that <laughs> came out and i'm like oh there's talent there's like some clever rhymes there's a really like passionate and like aggressive vocal and it, it's exciting again all of a sudden i'm like yeah no this is this is good stuff now again. yeah yeah it's like oh no it's still it's still it's still out there it's how much it permeates yeah. and, and, and hopefully there is some you know like me going back and discovering diamond head or whatever through metallica hopefully there is uh, you know i mean and i don't know because that's been controversial in that mumble rap scene too where one of those guys got in hot water for um saying he didn't care about tupac <laughs> like you know the old, mm -hmm. all the old school people are like what whoa you know and he's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't care that's not my shit you know and um yeah hopefully though that there's still some connecting of the dots and and lineage that that can happen there because um, I think that's uh -huh. so important for every genre. Um, you know, imagine if you were the front man for some 41 and you were like stiff little fingers, what buzzcocks, who are they? Who cares? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, like yeah. even when you don't necessarily love something personally, there's gotta be that respect and that acknowledgement of um, the architects, you know, of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so when did uh, riffing, on Metallica songs on your guitar. When did that when did that first happen? Well, that was all around the same time that I started picking up a guitar. Was around the same time as getting into music. Um, yeah. So soon after, I started discovering, like you know, like I said, ten eleven was when I kind of got into rock music. Um, and I'm going to say by you know thirteen, I was starting to pick up a guitar, and you know you. Definitely, you want to learn a few of the songs that are really popular in the cool riffs, so Enter Sandman is one of them, you know, one yeah. of the, the early ones that I, I'm sure kids still pick up now is like one of their early riffs, you know. Yeah, I wonder how many times um, that's being heard in a guitar center like that and like Smells Like Teen Spirit yeah. <laughs> probably took over yeah, for Stairway totally. to Heaven. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So like that was sort of my era of like learning how to play guitar was Nirvana, um, not a lot of Metallica because it's pretty technical for like a beginner, but yeah, you do want to learn uh, Sandman for sure. Yeah, and Inner Sandman, part of the genius of it is it's kind of just one riff for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, which which yeah. com coming right out of Van Justice for All, which was you know a million riffs for ten minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's pretty pretty genius. Um, and a lot of people don't Definitely. don't recognize this necessarily, but that's um, that's a Kirk riff too. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, which is which is awesome. So, uh, do you remember some of the other uh, Metallica stuff that you 
tried to learn eventually as you as you were getting your chops up and and all that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, you start learning. I remember like trying to learn battery, master puppets, and from the bell tolls is obviously a little bit easier. Um, uh, motor brass, uh, four horsemen. Those were like a lot of the early ones. Nice. There's the eternal four horsemen versus mechanics debate, which we've had on this show before. <laughs> I, won't, oh, <okay. laughs> I won't drag you into that if you don't want to be drug into it. Um, yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, you know, when you were first playing with other people, um, was Metallica something that kind of got tossed around the, the practice room or warming up or, you know, what were some of the, the common uh, bands and songs that were first sort of bandied about when it was you and somebody else? Like in the early days? Or yeah. Like I guess depends on what era of Sum 41 or is it me? Yeah, I, mean, I, I started Sum 41 pretty early. So right, right. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, that's been your thing like since the jump. Since basically. 10th grade. So I was yeah. like, you know, I was 16 or 15 basically when we started. So I was only like playing guitar for a couple of years before Sum 41. Um, and in the early days, it was, I mean, we were, I wasn't very good, you know, we're not, we're just still learning. So the biggest thing that I was learning at the time would have been Nirvana, you know, mm -hmm. and, and Metallica is kind of like a dream to get to at that point. Yeah. You know, and that's, what's great about Nirvana and a lot of punk and hardcore in general is that accessibility. And I mean, and Metallica mm -hmm. has that too, in the sense that you know, when hair metal bands were making such a big deal about their image and, and all that. And the Metallica is like, we're in ripped jeans and t-shirts. We look like, we look like the audience, you know, that was a certain form mm -hmm. of accessibility. And certainly they have a punk spirit and it. it's in there. It's baked into their recipe somewhere, but. Well, that's why like a song like motor breath spoke to me like early on, you know, I always felt like it was like that that was similar to a lot of punk rock, you know, that I was listening to. Yeah. In in just like the, I don't know, just the way that delivery to me just felt like there was like a thread there. You know, it wasn't a punk rock song, but there was kind of something there to me that was like maybe I felt like I, I liked because I liked punk rock music. I didn't think that there was that they were that different to me, you know, sort of like this fast kind of early like that early Metallica stuff to me doesn't sound a lot different than some punk rock I was listening to, basically. Yeah, I would argue even that, that Kill Em All in particular is, has a very punk spirit to it. Totally. And it's got that street, you know, scanning the scene in the city tonight, looking for you to start up a fight. Like, you know, some of the lyrics and stuff even, it's mm -hmm. very, like, almost street punk. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, pub totally. brawl and, or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, like you mentioned Nirvana, um, one of the great geniuses of, of Kurt Cobain's whole aesthetic is that you know he wasn't a great singer he wasn't a great guitar player he was a brilliant songwriter and those yeah. songs were so good and his particular way of singing and performing them gave them the energy that made them so cool you know it, but it's not mm -hmm. but it's accessible in the sense that it wasn't about like oh i gotta be ingve malmstein you know like, <laughs> no you don't you can be kurt cobain just <laughs> it's about it's it's about you know the sum of its parts there's a lot of ingredients you know Definitely. I mean, and that to me at that age was what kind of got me going into writing music because it was, you know, you could learn a few chords and then I discovered that I could sort of put my own chords together and sing something of my own over it. Yeah. And I think for myself, I, I fell way more into the writing side and kind of left the technical side and, and learning how to play guitar. I didn't, I sort of gave that up in a way. Like I think when I first started, you, you see, Metallica and someone like Slash, and that's like the goal. But as I got more into songwriting, I kind of let that go. And I kind of regret that. I mean, I wish that I had spent more time on trying to be a better guitar player. Um, because if you don't really focus on it when you're that young and you have all that time, it's it's really hard to get into it later. Yeah. You don't have that kind of time as an adult <laughs> to, to learn how to play that well. Yeah, or learn a new language or, you know, a whole list yeah. of things, right? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I just saw this interview pretty recently, actually, with uh, Marty Friedman, um, and he was actually saying, uh, you know, it was one of those like questions, like, "What advice do you have?" or whatever. And he very much was advocating against the idea of sitting in your room and learning scales and trying to shred as hard as this person or that person, and was pushing more towards um, more guitar players should be starting bands earlier and just going out and playing because the best practice mm -hmm. you're going to get is with other people and on stage. And, um, you know, he was, I, I thought, I thought it was a, a great point of view and, and something you don't hear much or that often in those conversations, right. Where he's rather than saying like, yeah, I get these tab books and these YouTube videos and this great teacher and, you know, sit around and shred for four or five years and then think about playing mm -hmm. in front of someone it was more that, you know, for for someone as accomplished as Marty Friedman to be saying, do what some 41 did, I thought was very cool. You know, which is essentially what he's saying, uh -huh. like, you know, do it the way you guys did and, and bands like you. Um, you know, so I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, uh, don't be too hard on yourself because I think <laughs> that route is every bit as important as, you know, the more uh, accomplished, polished kind of technical players. Yeah, I don't know. I guess everyone has sort of their own path, I guess. And, um, you know, I didn't really think about it much. I just sort of like gravitated to what towards what I felt comfortable with, I guess. Well, you know, and with all of that being said, um, I'm sure you heard it back then. I'm sure you've heard it since then. Uh, and this isn't to, you know, uh, talk shit on anybody else. But by far, Sum 41 stole the show at the icon thing. I mean, there was just, there was literally no competition, no comparison. Really? And, and I, I didn't, I did not necessarily agree with that, but I mean, <laughs> thank you. I mean, it's the most memorable performance. It's the one that stands the test of time. It's the one people talk about, um, in a positive <laughs> way. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think well, that, that's cool. And I think that the most genuine sort of reverence and, and fun, I mean, you guys attacked that medley the way that, Metallica attacks like the Merciful Fate medley, or you know, or, yeah, you know, when they're doing their oh, like it cool. had that same spirit where you could tell you guys were having fun, but it was it was also tight and, um, you know, the little uh, stop that you did at the end, like you know, just the little pieces of the different songs. It was, and, and also, um, you know, like you were saying, you guys had kind of the early pick of the litter with the with uh, the song choices. Um, when did you find out that you were gonna be? playing as metallica was introduced and came out because that was oh, that was the day that was while oh, wow. we were there yeah like we no had pressure. to sort of figure <laughs> it yeah no no we, we got told that day and we had to extend the mel the medley that day as well because that was just decided right then like at soundcheck or something wow so yeah it was the whole thing was pretty nerve-wracking i guess the, the the one of the things that we were already on tour at the time and we found out even though we had like an early pick of the songs, it wasn't too, there wasn't much time before the actual event. Um, like I remember we didn't really have much time to get it together. Wow. I think we only had like a sound check and then like of our own at one of our own shows. And then we had to fly and do a sound check at the event. And that's sort of where we kind of put it all together. There wasn't really much, rehearsal for it which i would have loved to have more but you know it, it was still fun and it doesn't really matter but that's incredible because i would have thought you guys had been playing that medley on tour for four weeks <laughs> like it really no came not off at all. really no, well i wish we had of yeah I, I wish we had but you know it is what it is we were i felt like we were still kind of like i remember we were running it over in the little trailer backstage before we went on and it was you know nerve-wracking we we're kind of like we we have it but we don't totally have like a couple of days of rehearsal. So when you're, when you're playing a gig like that, obviously it's, you know, far from the norm on a, on a lot of levels. Um, when you're on stage there, are you playing to the crowd in the room? Are you playing to people watching at home? Are you playing to just the four guys in Metallica? Like what, you know, where's your, where's your head at when you're in that <laughs> environment? Head, I remember that, that environment, my head was everywhere. <laughs> I remember just like not knowing what to focus on and just there's so much that was happening. And, 
Yeah, I mean, you go out there. It's one of those things, too. Like, even if you rehearse it a bunch of times, the second you go out on stage on something like that, it all goes out the window. And you're <laughs> kind of like, where? what am I supposed to do again? Like, what's the first line? What's the first riff? Like, you kind of just, you know, unless you've played it live a bunch of times, no matter how much rehearsal you have or how much you think you've got it down, it all goes out the window. Yeah. Which is why I would have loved to have been playing it live before that. Um, but, you know, yeah, all of that was just kind of coming at me. And then you see Metallica walk out and you're like, <laughs> oh, man, they're, I forgot they're walking out to this. And we have to extend the medley. I hope everyone remembers that. And, you know, you're just <laughs> you're just hoping for the best, basically. And especially with the medley, too, because, uh, you know, with a song that you know really well and you love, you know, the, that muscle memory might even kick in. But this is a medley, so you got to stop your hands from going into the next part of, you know, Inner yeah, Sandman because yeah, you need to be switching to Master of Puppets or whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a it, – it, it can be weird. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It was definitely exciting, fun, cool, and, and nerve-wracking at the same time. <laughs> that's a, all the emotions I would imagine were associated with it. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Uh, so, you know, the other thing that stands out about that show in general, um, which is, you know, kind of lost to time now, but we hadn't heard from or seen Metallica in quite some time when that mm -hmm. show was put together. And of course, you know, hindsight, uh, now that everyone's seen some kind of monster and, and during some kind of monster, you know, you see the conference call where, Q Prime is pitching MTV Icon to the band, and then they're like, yep. we got to make this bass player decision if we're going to do this show." Um, uh huh. You know, but but at the time, like that, you know, we hadn't seen that movie. We didn't really know what had been happening. We just knew that they had been away, and James had been in rehab, and Newstead was out of the band, and so mm -hmm. I mean, that that had to be a lot of pressure on them. And of course, it was it was a, a cool, fun, celebratory event, but. Um, yeah, in retrospect, it's like, man, what a, what a, what an interesting and specific moment in that band's history. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was definitely like a, I mean, right before that was a weird time. It felt like for Metallica, like from my point of view, like I remember before our first record came out, um, you know, when there was like that, the, all the Napster stuff and like, just like that, right. that little, that era, um, and I try to explain it to my wife because she was too young for it at that point. I mean, I was only about like 19 and I still loved Metallica, but I remember it being kind of a weird time for them, you know? Yeah. And I remember some people being against them and making fun of me for liking Metallica still. And I'm like, you know, but they just kind of stuck to who they were and they're like bigger and cooler and better than ever now. You know, <laughs> totally. they just, yeah. They got out of it, and it was just like a little moment that was kind of weird, and it's just great. I just love that they just, you know, are where they are now. Absolutely. Because it looked kind of bleak for a second, you know. It was kind of a weird moment. You know, I had uh, Jamie from Hatebreed on the show uh, a while back, and uh, he actually uh, sells a T-shirt on his website that just says, Lars was right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's also, I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole we could go down, but yeah, but that's another thing yeah, too, yeah. where it's like, well, he wasn't wrong. Um, yeah. I, I recommend to people, uh, there's a great uh, Charlie Rose episode that you can find on YouTube um, from back in that era. And it's Lars and Chuck D and, you know, all the respect to Chuck D love public enemy. Uh, but everything Lars is predicting in that interview came true. And nothing mm -hmm. Chuck was predicting came true. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I should check that out. So, yeah, it's really interesting to watch now with the benefit of hindsight. And it's, you know, and Lars is saying things mm -hmm. like, this isn't just music. Yeah. Like, it's going to be movies. It's going to be TV shows. It's going to be books. And Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, it's like you said, it was an interesting moment and um, a rougher moment to be a Metallica fan because I was, you know, a little bit older than you, but I, I was having the same thing where, um, you know, it wasn't cool to like them in a certain crowd for a, a couple of years. And yeah, it was really nice to see that come back around. Um, so when you guys are, you know, you're, you're on tour, you're doing your own shows, you're coming into that thing. It, it's high pressure. There's a lot of moving parts. 
where in their, you know, I, I, like I've seen a, a couple of, of pictures um, of you guys with Hetfield. Um, where in there mm-hmm. did you get an opportunity to say hi or, you know, what, what was their feedback and was there any sort of interaction on the day? Yeah, on the day, um, you know, uh, I guess the first person we met was Lars. He came around um, to where the trailers were and, you know, thanked everybody and hung out. And he was really cool, really nice, um, you know, and got to hang out with him for a little bit there. Um, but I, th- I found it really cool and awesome just, like, how friendly he was. Like, he just came around and said thank you to everybody that was a part of it because it was all the trailers of everyone who was performing and everyone that was there. And uh, I always found that cool for the fact, like, that – I mean, I'm I'm kind of a shy person. Like, I don't know if I, even though I would want to thank people, I feel almost, that would be hard for me to go up to just strangers, a bunch of strangers, one after the other. Right. You know, by myself, where he was just, you know, coming up alone. Uh, and I thought, wow, man, that's brave. I wish I could do something like that. <laughs> just so many people. But, you know, I guess some people are just different. He was really good at it. And he made us feel really comfortable and we felt really great for being there because, like I said, we were nervous to be there. We we felt like we don't necessarily belong here. We're not a metal band. Like are people thinking this is a you know travesty that we're here. You know, so right. and then he came along and, and made us feel comfortable. And all of a sudden, I just didn't care what anyone thought because you know Lars thought it was cool that we were there. <laughs> right, right. And I love that. Um, you know, you guys had kind of that almost an underdog thing. There's sort of nothing to lose, you know, because people were like, oh, this this punk band, you know, like, uh, you know, or this band that's on TRL right now or whatever, you know, and then you mm-hmm. come out and you guys just shred and just nail it. Um, and, you know, you kind of that, that's in retrospect, a, a sweet spot to be in, you know, where the, where the expectations are low the and time, then you far exceed it, it, you know. At the time, it didn't feel like a sweet spot for us. <laughs> I'm sure it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what about afterwards? Did you um, did you cross paths with with any of those guys uh, afterwards? Yeah. So then we ended up meeting all the guys throughout the night. Um, we met James at the very end. There's sort of like you know it was all over, but there was kind of like a, a hangout sort of after party ish type thing where people were just talking and whatever. Um, you know, everybody from the whole event was there, meeting everyone, and we saw James and went up and had a you know, I don't know, five minute conversation with him or so and uh thanked him for having us there and um he was a lot taller than I thought he was gonna be. <laughs> and I thought he was a big guy, but man, yeah, yeah he's like he is a larger than life guy. <laughs> um so yeah, it was intimidating of course when we're, you know, twenty two years old and uh meeting our idols. But um yeah. it was great. It was really cool. You know, and then afterwards, I forgot, I just remember too. And then afterwards, we ended up, then we ha- we hung out with Lars after that too. We were all ended up back at the hotel. And oh, sick. there's, there was a few of us, I don't remember how many, maybe like 20 or, or so people. And I think we were in Lars's hotel room or somebody's hotel room. It was a big room and we were just all hanging. I remember some of the Papa Roach guys were there. Um, and we, yeah, we were just, hanging out having a good time and all of a sudden you know Lars is such a easygoing guy easy to, he kind of felt like we already knew him for a while right after right. a while you know he's yeah he's uh very gregarious and and definitely the ambassador you hear that about him a lot that he's the one that's outgoing and meeting other bands yeah and making everybody welcome and that's cool yeah 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 and I remember we had to fly out that night too so we we could only really hang till like I probably like three in the morning or something like that uh, party kept going but we had to leave <laughs> oh you know he's the it, it, it's funny that he's the most outgoing because you know for me as a longtime journalist and long longer time fan um he's the only one of those guys i haven't met <laughs> um, oh really <laughs> yeah it's just, just the luck of the draw but yeah i've, I've interviewed kirk uh, a handful of times i've, I've interviewed uh, kirk and james together i've met rob on, on a lot of settings i've interviewed newstead and it just yeah i've never Never cross paths with Lars. It's obviously, it's on my list. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I always hear from other bands, you know, whether it's Avenged Sevenfold or other people that have been on this podcast, it always comes up how uh, Lars was the first one to, you know, put his proverbial arm around a band and make them yeah, yeah. feel the warmth. Yeah, and every time I've ever seen him since, he's always been like that. 
That's awesome. He's always been great. I will say, and only, and I'll only say this here, and only say this to you because I, I'm a hundred percent sure that this is not related to some forty-one. But uh, the last time I moved, I came across my uh, laminate from MTV Metallica Icon, and um, I posted a picture of it on Instagram, and Kirk Hammett commented, <laughs> and he oh, yeah. ju- and he just wrote no comment. <laughs> so, like I said, I only bring that up because I know it wasn't about some 41. <laughs> but yeah. uh, there were some uh, disappointing and strange performances that evening. Um, and like I said, you guys were the, you're the one that's remembered and, and that was, uh, you know, kick ass. Huh. Worth, worth finding on YouTube, which it is on YouTube, kids. If you haven't yeah. seen it or haven't seen it in a while, go, go check it out. Um, while I've got you and while you're on a Metallica podcast, uh, you know, the press release that went out from Hopeless about uh, the record you're putting out this summer described mm-hmm. it as uh, your most aggressive and heaviest record um, that Sum 41's ever done. Uh, so maybe we can connect the dots somewhere from the uh, the old school Metallica influence on the band and um, where things are at in 2019. What can, what can you tell me about the record and the uh the aggression and the sort of output of emotion that's happening. Well, I mean, for me, it's always difficult because to me, it's just the songs that I'm writing. Um, but I don't know, I guess I wrote all these songs. I, I started writing a lot of this stuff while I was on the road and just in hotel rooms and on the bus and stuff like that. And everything I write is always, it's meant to be played live and you know, we're as I'm coming off stage on this last tour and everything that is, I don't know, I guess I'm seeing the reaction from the fans and it's just inspiring. And I just wanted to write music to get back out on stage too. And I guess it came out sort of more aggressive and, and fast and I don't know, just kind of heavier, I guess. Um, I've always had that influence. Uh, Like I said, Metallica, like I like that kind of sort of thread, that that line between it's not i definitely would not say it's metal for me um but i like having the element of kind of heavier but fast you know something that has kind of like a punk rock vibe to it i guess i don't know um again it's hard for me to describe it but uh i think my influences just come through on it i guess i don't know yeah and um you know there was uh obviously a a bigger gap in time between Screaming Bloody Murder and, and 13 Voices, which was the last time we had mm-hmm. an opportunity to speak was on that record cycle. Um, this yeah. one's coming out a lot a lot quicker, and um, it seems like there's a momentum and kind of a, a continuity that, that's that's happening within the band. I would assume that that's a positive sign that things are harmonious and the band is fun for you and, you know, all the things you absolutely. want to be happening are happening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't do anything if I didn't want to do it um i mean i jumped into writing this record the day that i got home from tour because of how great the last tour just was and i just wanted to get back out there and yeah the band is playing together better than ever i mean we're a five piece now which we had just kind of become a five piece on the last record but we didn't record as a five piece so we kind of learned the band how to be a band while we were on the road when we came when we were finishing the tour it was like well this is the best the band's ever been let's go into the studio now yeah or as soon as we can and just get back out there and this is the second record that you did it at your place at your home studio no i've done a lot of i mean for the past like four albums they always end up mostly done at the house they always are kind of half somewhere else oh gotcha um but but I did a thing that I did more this time is that I, I actually mixed the album myself. Oh wow! Um, so that was done at my house as well. So it did feel like a lot of it was kind of done at the house. Um, you know, this is the first time I've ever mixed a whole album. That's awesome. And that was just sort of by accident. You know, that was it. Just started. It kind of just sounded finished as I was making my rough mixes. You know, we were going to decide who should mix this, and once I put it all together and. and listen back to it everyone said it is mixed <laughs> and i was like i i yeah. don't know because i mean, i'd been hearing it too much so i kind of didn't think it sounded that good anymore my ears were kind of blown out yeah and everyone said it sounds finished i'm like ah oh, sounds like a rough demo to me i don't know well that that's awesome i, I you know and i was going to ask um you know because you've 
Some 41's recorded at some legendary studios, you know, Sound City, which mm-hmm. there's a whole documentary about, and Ocean Way, yep, and, yeah. um, you know, what East are... West is one yes. of our favorites. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's got to be, uh, obviously, a lot of advantages to doing things more on your home turf. And uh, what would you say that you learned from some of those bigger studio experiences in terms of what to do and, and also what not to do that you're now able to apply at your own place? Well, I think the biggest reason why I wanted to do stuff at home is because I don't like to wait for other people. And mm. I find when you're in studios and you've got other people, you're always waiting on somebody to do yeah. something. Yeah. Um, but when it's all your stuff, your gear, and you're doing it by yourself, you just like the workflow is so simple and so quick. And I would hate being in a studio knowing that I can just, I can get something done, but like the engineer has got to go do something or he's, there's just something, their attention's being taken away somehow. And then you need the assistant to get the tape machine, you know, all this stuff. Like I'd rather just like have my own gear that I know how to use and just push record, you know, when I want. You know, before we uh, spoke today, because of course this this record also features Frank Zumo, who I love, mm-hmm. uh, you know, great dude, and I love him as a drummer. I, uh, in anticipation for this conversation, I came across a video of you uh, playing solo and doing the Metallica medley at Lucky Strike Bowling, I think. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And uh, dude, hearing Frank, um, man, it's, uh, <laughs> for whom the bell tolls, like just him doing the. Like he just hit so hard and so yeah, consistent. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, and that that was a He's treat. Phenomenal. I must I must recommend that as well. People should go find that because, uh, yeah, he just he sounds yeah, so good playing that stuff. He's a great drummer to play with. Um, he's a great guy, and uh, yeah, you know, he's he's family at this point. Indeed. So, um, what does the uh, rest of this year look like for you? Generally speaking, is it you know put the record out and get back out there? Yeah, well, the record comes out July 19th, and then, I mean, we're on the road. We're going to Europe in a couple of days for festivals, um, and then the rest of the year is just touring. You know, we're going to do North America mostly this year. The new year is going to be, you know, full world tour. Nice. Well, I got to ask you this, since we were talking about you uh, mixing the record, um, does that give you the itch at all to start mixing records for other bands? <laughs> uh, I don't know. May, possibly, I like. I actually prefer mixing than I do producing. Mm. Um, mixing is really fun, and I really enjoy it. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it's not like I'm actively gonna start looking for bands to mix. But if something came along, um, yeah, I would love to do it. That's awesome. Um, well, dude, I appreciate you making the time to do this. Uh, like I said, you were a uh, a wishless person. I thought it'd be really fun to awesome. well, talk you. about that show and talk about Metallica in general. Before I let you go, uh, and it doesn't have to be your definitive, uh, you know, carved in stone list by any means, but kind of just off the top of your head, what are two or three of your favorite Metallica riffs? Oh, riffs. Um, <laughs> I mean, because you could say like one song has like, you know, so many different riffs in it. <laughs> totally. Um, uh, I mean, I know it's so obvious, but I mean, Master of Puppets, I mean, some of those, yeah. riffs, I always think like that song is the, the, I mean, that's obviously the the reason to me why they just are who they are. You know, when that came out, like there's, you just can't compete with that. Like I'm looking at Master of Puppets as a song for when it first came out, not as we mm-hmm. know it now where it's like, oh, obvious one. But like, imagine hearing that for the first time, which you probably did. I was, you know, when it came out, I was six. You know, so I didn't hear it at the time. Um, yeah, I was. That's what I always think. Like, I was. I came in at the tail end of uh, the Master Puppets cycle. I guess I, of course, didn't know that language back then. But yeah, I was. I mm-hmm. was in. I was in middle school, and when I discovered Metallica, Garage Days was actually the current release, which is a weird moment. Um, uh-huh. It was a cover record, but yeah, uh, I, I always argue. You know, if aliens show up on earth and they're like what is metallica like master of puppets is the song you play someone you know exactly it's like the, like, ex- the so explanation yeah. so yeah i mean how you know how many riffs are in there <laughs> that's, that's, that's all yeah. of them right there there's enough in there <laughs> but i mean i love i love blackened 
Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a Newstead you know, riff. That's it's Jason Newstead. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot, you know, and then even if you want to go something that's like totally not like one of those crazy fast ones, like so simple, but so badass, sad, but true. Oh man. Know? And you were talking about, you know, writing this record with the, the mindset of playing it live and wanting to go back out and play it live and write new songs to do live. I mean, that song is just, you can only imagine that being written as with just stadium. I mean, it's just stadiums, <laughs> you know, like that's just like... Well, it, I love that song because like one of the main hooks of that song, if you, it, it's not even a riff, but it's just, just that snare roll. Yeah. Like that's like the hook. You know what I love about that snare roll too is, you know, for a lot of cover songs, drummers can kind of do whatever, right? Like if, you know, for a lot of famous rock songs and stuff, you gotta have the riff and the vocal melody and that's the cover. But yeah, you can't cover sad, but true and, and do different drum fills. Yeah, totally. It's gotta be those fills. Totally. I mean, some of that drumming to me is, I mean, it's so creative and so right for those songs that they're, it's as important as the guitar riff. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, it's, and it makes you, makes you go, oh, okay, I guess that insane, meticulous overthinking that they did on <laughs> some of those parts making that record for a year or whatever, like it... It paid off because that record's still selling, you know, three, four thousand a week when no records are selling. <laughs> yeah, so, totally, uh, pretty amazing. And they own it now. It's just, yeah, they've. I know that's crazy. They're such a great guide about what to do <laughs> for any for yeah. any misstep, missteps and mistakes that can be nitpicked. Um, man, they've done just about everything right. Mm-hmm. So, well, killer again. Thanks for thanks for coming on, speak and destroy. Very happy to have you, and very much looking forward to seeing what you guys do behind this new record. Cool. Well, thank you very much for having me. Big, big thanks to Derek for joining us on Speak and Destroy. And look out for a future episode with Derek's bandmate, Dave Brownsound, guitar player from Sum 41 and Metallica superfan, uh, who was actually during that MTV Icon performance wearing a Bad Brain shirt. That conversation has already happened, and it was awesome and will be unleashed at some point down the road after this one. Remember, the best way you can support this podcast right now is to leave a five-star rating and a nice little review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps raise the visibility and awareness of Speak and Destroy. You can find Speak and Destroy at speakanddestroy.com, as well as on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speaking of Troy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Be sure to check out past episodes with great guests like M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, Rob Flynn from Machine Head, Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm, Gary Holt from Exodus and Slayer, David Ellison from Megadeth, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica Director Adam Dubin, and many, many more. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downing. <laughs>